We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Transformative Principle, Episode 57, Randy Barron. Welcome to Transformative Principle, the show where we learn every week from a leader who's making a difference, how to become better and improve our schools. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. You can find great resources and the show notes at transformativeprinciple.com. All right. Today, um, my guest is Randy Barron. He's a, uh, Kennedy Center. Well, I'll let you describe who you are and what you do. How about that? Okay, great. My name is Randy Barron. I'm a Kennedy Center teaching artist. I work specifically with dance and choreography and connect that to other subjects in the classroom. That's great. So you're here in Kodiak right now uh, working with some of our schools and talk a little bit about what you're doing with that. Well, the main thrust is to have a teacher workshop and those are typically three hours in the Kennedy Center model. And what we do in the teacher workshop is um, show what the techniques are that we're using in the classroom. We give those to the teacher in a participatory way, and then they walk away with a packet of resources and materials they can use to put it to practice. As a support for that and for the teachers that are participating, I'm also doing demonstration lessons in classrooms at your four elementary schools. And what I'm doing there is teaching one classroom at a time and showing what I actually do with kids in the classroom and that it actually does work not just with adult learners, but also with our young learners. Cool. So tell me more about what the Candy Center model is and, and how that helps teachers in schools. The purpose of arts integration is for us to be teaching both an art form and another subject area at the same time. So it's a little different from arts enhancement, where we might teach someone a dance that's already been made up or a song that they could learn to memorize the order of something. This is much more for the students to be creating. So we set them loose with a creative problem to solve, and they create their own piece of art. In my case, they're creating choreography or dances about the subjects that we're investigating. 
The Kennedy Center's definition of arts integration is that it's an approach to teaching in which students construct and demonstrate understanding through an art form. Students engage in a creative process which connects an art form and another subject area and meets evolving objectives in both of those subjects. So we're giving the work over to the students. They're the ones building the understanding and their understanding is contained in that artistic product that they're creating. Okay, so your purpose is to not just teach kids some artistic thing, but to teach them something else at the same time. Is that in response to the cutting of funding to arts, or is that a superior way to teach? What's your philosophy on that? Well, this is in addition to the other ways in which we, we use and teach the arts in school. We still want to have our art specialists teaching art as curriculum, because each art form has its own body of knowledge and its own skills and techniques, and we want to keep doing that. Arts enhancement is a good thing. By singing the ABC song, we remember the order of the alphabet. We know the nifty-fifty states. But we're not learning anything about the art form when we do that. So in arts integration, we're actually using the tools and techniques of the art form to create a piece of art that contains understanding about something else as well. And that means that the students are doing the creating. The teacher really doesn't have to be the artist. They don't have to be an expert. They just need to know enough about the art form to set the creative problems for their students to solve and then turn them loose, and then you can assess those products in numerous ways and make them part of their portfolios that proves that they are guilty of learning. Guilty of learning. That's a good phrase. I like that. Um, so how much, so you're talking about movement and dance um, with what you're doing. How much of what, uh, how much of movement and dance do teachers need to know about to be successful with this? Really, the only uh, information that teachers need to have is the elements of dance, which are simple and four in number, body, energy, space, and time, or B-E-S-T. And then once you think about those elements and the sub-elements within them, you can lay that Venn diagram over other subjects and see where are the matchup points. Dance is great with science because everything in the universe is moving, and so we can figure out ways to show that movement and the ways that things happen over time in science. Uh, with language, I often work with poetry because dance is figurative movement in the way that poetry is figurative language, and they fit together really well. You can create dances from poems, and you can write poems from dances. Uh, so we're always looking for the place where is that significant um, and mutually reinforcing connection between the art form and the subject area. Some areas have more connections than others. Some are more mutually reinforcing than others, and those are the ones that we're teaching teachers how to look for them and how to then run with those in the classroom. Okay, so um, you you talked about um, integrating easily with science and poetry. Um, what are some of the areas where it's more difficult but that you still see a connection? I'm sure, sure that you could see a connection between every subject and could find out how to make it work, right? But what areas would it be more difficult and do you kind of have to stretch yourself to be able to find those connections? Yeah, you become a creative designer of these problems to solve, so you have to, to be thinking creatively when you're looking at the elements and when you're looking at whatever connections you're trying to make. Uh, for instance, math is a little tougher because a lot of times what we're looking for is some skills for students in math. <clears throat> but what I can teach with an art form is I can teach the ideas, the big concepts, numeracy, the ideas of um, what's the commutative property and how does it look in action, uh, what about shapes and transformations graphing in space, uh, coordinate systems, 
things we're, we're moving through space and time are going to reinforce the concepts that we're working on. But other things like drilling the multiplication tables, I haven't figured out a way to create an interesting dance about multiplying. So um, I'm leaving that to other people to think of. Sure, that's that's understandable. Um, so what talk about the problems that you're asking kids to solve. What does that actually look like and how do they approach or, or deal with that? What process do you go through for that? Well, for instance, today in classes we were creating dance phrases about the water cycle. We were telling the story of the water cycle by creating a repeating dance phrase. And the students built their own and we added music to them and they showed them to each other and explained what they were thinking as they were going through it. One child was an ice cube who melted into a river, evaporated into a cumulonimbus cloud, evaporated back, I mean condensed back down into a waterfall, and then froze back into the ice cube that, that he started as. So he was able to tell that story in words, but also show it in movement and dance it at the same time. <clears throat> Once the kids have that experience of all making their own dances and they've got their own movement vocabulary, then I move them into small groups and I give them each assignments that are based on whatever the topic is. With the water cycle, for instance, one of my groups is show where solid water is found on the planet and how it can become liquid. So they might show me a glacier slowly melting into the ocean, or they might show me an ice cube tray left out on the counter. And they have to figure out in their group what situation are they going to show and how will they turn that into movement without using voices or props or objects in their hands. So it's all about the body's ability to communicate. Another one of the, the uh, assignments I give them in that set is show where underground water might be found and how can it get to the surface. So they might choose to show me a geyser. They might choose to show me an artesian well or someone pumping water to the surface. So we're, we're just getting across those bigger ideas, and then they're deciding how to show that in movement. Okay, so I'm picturing my kids in elementary school doing this and coming up with some really wacky, I wouldn't know that's what they're doing unless they told me kind of things, right? How how do you, I don't want to say control for that, but how do you deal with that or is that part of the process? Actually, that is part of the process because their first drafts are not the place we leave off, right? We I have them make a first draft. We watch them. We see them first without anybody knowing what the assignment was so we can really get a chance to look at the shape and the form of the dance and what does it suggest to us. Then we talk about that a little bit, and we ask the group to reveal their assignment. And when they let us know, then we can all go, oh, now I get it. Then we're now looking for detail as we see it a second time. Now we're watching closely. So we're reading dances like text, and we're doing close reading of our text, and we're arguing from evidence, and we're saying, I think it was this because I saw this. And that gives the choreographer students feedback about their choices. So now they can decide, they meet and decide how successful was this, what would we keep in our second draft, and what do we need to toss out and replace with something better. I also give them the elements of dance as tools for refining their work. So they're always aware that it's a serious process. We're having fun and we're playing, but we're not playing around. We're playing with a purpose. And we're playing with a reason to communicate something important about this science idea to somebody else. Hmm, that sounds really cool. <laughs> Um, so kids are, are doing this, and then are are you expecting every kid to participate in the dance, or are there some roles that different kids take? How does that setup work in the actual in the actual classroom? Yes, everybody participates. I'm, I'm shooting for 100%. I always have 100%. The, for one thing, it's engaging and it's fun. 
it takes some kids longer to get into it than others, and there's a there's a spectrum of how much movement they're willing to do at the beginning. But everybody really gets into it. Today we had fifth graders, and some of the boys who were looking very um, shy and unwilling at the beginning were dancing up a storm by the end of the class. They were really getting it. They were having a good time, and they felt like they really were getting both science and dance. So there's that, there's that continuum in the process of inviting them in. Uh, and then we also, in the small groups, if you're not as comfortable moving or being out front, you might be a more stationary thing or a, or a partner up with somebody else and you, the two of you are doing something that you feel safe doing. They get to choose their own level of how much risk they're going to take, but it's all outside their comfort zone, which means it's in their learning zone. And that's a great way to look at it outside their comfort zone and in their learning zone. That's something that we need to we need to be aware of. Um, recently, someone was talking about um, about getting kids to do that just with classroom response. Someone who was here earlier this week, and um, and that's that was a really powerful moment in our professional development earlier, where she was talking about that, and we were all able to recognize, yeah, that is actually what's happening. These kids are uncomfortable, just uncomfortable enough that they're actually learning something. So you talked about them going back to a second draft. How do they record um, what it is that they're doing and keep track of how they're supposed to move um, from during a dance and then going back and, and re refining it? The beautiful thing is our muscle memory does most of that work for us. We have a map of our dances built into our bodies once we've done them, practiced them, showed them a couple of times. And what's cool about revising and dance is if you're going to do it again, there's, you got to start over anyway. There's nothing to throw away. They didn't waste any materials. And so they um, take often to just diving in and making changes and thinking, wow, I saw this other group do this cool thing. Let's try that strategy, but it's on our subject here. We're going to apply that formation we just saw or that idea of a, of a wave or a sequential movement or whatever it might be so that they um, are continually trying to improve their work. I also give them a chance to record it in pictures and writing. So they can show me a drawing of their beginning shape that they started in, where were they on the stage, and they show me a drawing of the ending shape, and then they narrate how they got from there from beginning to end and tell me why. Why was this good science? Why was this good aesthetically? Why did we choose to do this? So it lets them all, they can work together as a group on that, but then each child has their own record of their thinking and their group's thinking. Okay, so if they if they had an idea in their first draft and they put it on paper and then they couldn't remember how they got from one point to the next, would they just make up a new way to get from one point to the next? Yeah, that would be one strategy, but typically they, they know it really well. It's amazing how quickly they internalize it and can remember it. And also the audience remembers and can remind them and say, hey, that part that we saw last time that we really liked, you took it out. Where'd it go? And so we, there's this back and forth between uh, the audience and the people sharing because everybody in the room is a choreographer now, and they're thinking as an artist. They're also thinking as a scientist, and they're trying to make both of those things into the best story of whatever science idea that they can. So why is this particular way of teaching something that attracted you? Like, how did you get into this point? Well, I was um, working as a performing artist, a professional dancer in Kansas City, Missouri, and the young audiences 
affiliate there invited people who would like to learn about classroom practice and would like to connect their work to the classroom to come and learn and take some workshops or actually a seminar. So I got my initial training through um, that program and it was tremendously powerful and exciting. My motivation was because I started dancing when I was 19. I didn't know about dance as an art form until then. I had I saw a ballet performance that I completely did not understand and I felt like a real idiot. So I decided to take some dance classes and when I did I found out that for me it combined all different parts of my personality. It was an intellectual challenge to remember all the steps and the movements and what was going on and the names for them. It was uh, a physical challenge. It was very sport-like, very athletic. I've always been interested in sports. And then there was an emotional high to it that was unlike anything else I'd done. And it just seemed like it knitted everything together for me. And I felt whole for the first time. I didn't want kids to go through school and life without knowing that dance was this thing you could play with, that it was a real plastic art form that they could enjoy and have fun with without having to know any steps, without having to be judged for their technique or their talent, uh, but to create from their own insides. And that's why I started, and that was in 1980. In 1995, I was invited to join the Kennedy Center's teaching artist roster, and they give us tremendous professional development. Every year we have an annual retreat to, to go and learn the latest things going on in education and make sure our practice stays sharp. So I find it challenging, I find it fulfilling, and uh, just tremendously exciting to watch those light bulbs come on in those little eyes and to see them transform their vision of themselves, really. So you don't, uh, I, I just find it amazing that you went at age 19 and became a professional dancer. So what was your dream before that? What, what did you want to be? Because if you just found out about dancing at 19, you had to have some other plans. What? What did you ditch to become a dancer? Well, that's that's a great question. I was a pre-med student, and I was really interested in diving. I thought maybe I could like go with Jacques Cousteau and be a doctor on one of his ships and go down and dive and take care of the other divers. I was interested in oceanography. I thought I might be a scientist. So my degree is in biology. I have a Bachelor of Science in Biology. Uh, and once I finished that, I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music for two years. I had been dancing throughout college. And I got a scholarship there. I spent two very intense years training. I spent a year in New York going through that crucible uh, and then uh, joined a dance company in the Midwest. That's that's an amazing story. And now you're sharing that love that you didn't even know you had with um, kids all over the country, all over the world. Is that? Well, I've, I've done this work in 37 states. I'm trying to make some inroads overseas as well because I think there's a lot of uh, countries that don't even aren't even as far along as we are on this path, but um, yeah, it's just a real passion to share it with them and to see that as many people as possible can get this idea. Which is why I also teach teachers because that multiplies my ability to reach into those classrooms. So, um, from what you described, it sounds like it would take a little bit longer to teach the water cycle through dance than through just the normal way of doing it. Um, and I'm sure that you hear that a lot. What's your response to, we don't have enough time to teach the standards anyway. How are we supposed to teach standards through dance? Arts integration is amazingly efficient because artists tend to think more globally and holistically. We bring in a lot of other learning. We bring in vocabulary, we bring in language, we do 
lots of other things besides just the science part. Plus, let's say I spent an hour teaching the water cycle by reading it to my students, showing them a video, and having them read about it, answer questions. Or I spent that same hour having them put it in their bodies where they will never forget it. That, to me, is a more efficient way of using my time. And part of the problem is sometimes we're under such pressure to cover the curriculum. That's exactly what we do. We cover it up. I'm interested in uncovering the ideas and having them explore with them and play with them. And they use them in a plastic way when they have them in their hands and their bodies and they're making images in their minds and then trying to make their bodies fit that image. There's a level of involvement that's going on that's incalculable. And we're using all the modalities. We're still using verbal and linguistic. We still have our oral modality. We're using visual because dance is a visual art. And we're using kinesthetic, which is one of the most powerful ways to remember something. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about uh, uncovering the curriculum, because I think there's some real power in that. And you and I talked a little bit, touched on that last night when I saw you at the airport. What, what do you mean by uncovering the curriculum? And talk about some examples of that. Well, I mean, by diving deeply into it, we start to raise questions. Students start to have their own questions. What I like to do is instead of providing a lot of information up front, we discover it through the process of creating our dance. And now they have additional questions about how does that work? What does that molecule really look like? What happens when water melts? And what happens when you put it in, into coffee or tea then? They were talking about today. Some of the kids had that question. Um, one child had a question. I'm now curious about astrophysics. I didn't even use that word. <laughs> so you can see that you know we're just opening up their minds. Instead of just being information dump with a lot of information flying at them, we're now giving them some reason to care about the information and to want more of it. And so they want to dive in deeper and go for more understanding because they feel like they're really starting to get it. They're not just parroting it back. They really have applied their knowledge. And that's where we get to understanding as opposed to just remembering. Yeah, and that distinction between understanding and remembering is, is important, especially for us as teachers who want kids to, to really embrace whatever content it is that we're teaching them and especially here at the middle school where, where, where I'm a principal at, um, these, these are foundational topics that kids are learning now that are going to help them understand other things for much of the rest of their lives. They're, they're important topics, especially in science and in social studies. We're starting to encounter things that are going deeper, and some kids may not have had that depth before in elementary school. Um, what... What are some other examples of ways that you've helped kids uncover and raise their own questions and, and, and been able to see things that they wouldn't have seen before? Well, for instance, when we're doing our poetry work, uh, we're concentrating on using short phrases that I've taken from poems and trying to turn those into evocative movement of some kind. To do that, they have to engage more closely with the text than if they were just reading that poem and if they were trying to make sense of it for themselves. Now... When they're working in a group, they're trying to figure out, what does this word really mean? And it could mean also this thing. And in our case, it means this. So they have to make some choices, and they get deeply engaged with the language because they're making choices about which movements to do. Same thing's true with the science ideas or the math ideas. And they have to be talking about them in their groups, listening, using the vocabulary. So it puts that knowledge to work. It puts it into practice for them. And that's where the memory comes in, and that's where the, uh, the power of the understanding comes in, because they see why this is important or why it makes sense. 
That's really cool. So what I'm envisioning as you're talking is um, kids in a classroom trying to figure out how to show the water cycle, for example, and not knowing what um, condensation is, and then finding out that they need to know that word to be able to make movement to it, and then looking up that word and figuring that kind of stuff out on their own. And is that essentially what you're describing, how it works? Well, they're, they're still getting instruction throughout, and I'm using the terminology correctly and in the right context. So they're hearing that while they're moving, which is another way of associating the movement with what they've learned. And it, uh, it's kind of a feedback loop in a way. There's, they're using the terms, I'm using the terms, we come back to it, we clarify. It isn't just once and we go on. And this is also something known as interleaving, where we have existing knowledge and we're adding new knowledge and we're going back over some old ground while moving into new territory. So instead of just all a new unit, which is blocking, right? We do a block, then we test it, then we do another block and we test that. And interleaving, we keep going back over older ground, but weaving it in new ways because we have new understandings about what we thought we knew before. And that makes it very dynamic, and it means that the students are the ones building their understanding. I'm not just layering it on them and hoping it'll stick. They are actually constructing that for themselves. That sounds pretty cool and sounds like what we really want to, to have happen, and we often lose sight of with the other pressures that we have. Um, what, are, what are some tips that you would give um, teachers and principals who would want to use this in their buildings who haven't attended one of your seminars yet? How would you, how would you advise them to get started? Well, if they can, find, find a Kennedy Center type workshop to attend. There are partnerships all over the country. There are several here in Alaska. It is a very powerful way to learn. But then also, they have to, I would say for principals, make sure that even though you're under a ton of pressure for testing and everything else, let your teachers have a little bit of breathing space. If they happen to be moving furniture and the kids are up moving around, trust that they are actually learning in that situation and not just having a party. Um, this is, it's a very playful and fun way to learn, which brings kids back. They want to come back. They want to do it. And they're asking the teachers. They'll say, can we do that again? Let's do that with this subject. And they have tons of ideas. So there's that space. Can we create space for teachers to do that? We also, if at all possible, need to create space for teachers to collaborate because just like learning in isolation is not the best way to learn for a student, it's also not the best way for a teacher to have to try something new. If they've got a partner or a colleague who can come and watch or can give them ideas, a little bit of feedback, uh, it's huge. You don't feel like you're the voice out in the wilderness. And, and so those are some very powerful ways to, to spread this technique quickly through a building. Yeah, that sounds really great. Um, so you mentioned find a Kennedy Center workshop they could attend. How do people find those? And then if people want to have you come specifically, how do people contact you? Well, the Kennedy Center has a website, and you can go and search for their partnerships. And the partnerships then list the different offerings that they have. It's just like a catalog, essentially. So you can find out who's doing what in which state. You can kind of see what the offerings are. Uh, my own personal work is all over the country. As I said, I live in New Mexico, even though I'm coordinated sometimes through D.C., and it, we all contract and connect directly with the partnerships when they want us. So um, an email to me at randy at owldancer.net 
O-W-L-D-A-N-C-E-R, Randy at OwlDancer.net is the best way to get hold of me because when I'm traveling, I usually can check email even if the phone doesn't reach me. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I have learned a lot, and I and I know everybody else will too. So thanks, appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, and please feel free to give us a rating on Stitcher Radio or on iTunes so that we can help spread the word about how much we're learning in this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.